Friday. Friday. It's almost like whoever named Friday knew it should be celebrated with free fries. Free fries Friday at McDonald's. Get a free medium fries with any purchase of a dollar or more on the McDonald's app. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 930 to participate in McDonald's. Excludes tax. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with Sirius XM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Ladies and gentlemen, for the most famous words in racing, the President of the United States. Thank you, Bill. Now it is my honor to start this race. Gentlemen, start your engines. Good God. I'm Daytona 500 champion. I can't believe it. I've seen it. Been lost so many times by Dad over and over. And I, he was over in the passenger side riding with me. I'm sure he was having a blast. I just remember the feel good of the day to even people that weren't Earnhardt fans, right? It felt good given his popularity. When he goes to the lead, you could feel, you know, just about feel that tower shake from all the people jumping up and down in the stands, right? Greetings. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. February 15th marks 20 years since the 2004 Daytona 500 and a momentous moment in NASCAR history. Consider everything that day 20 years ago entails. The dawn of a new championship playoff, unlike anything tried before in NASCAR, much less auto racing. A new Cup Series title sponsor for the first time in more than 30 years. An extended pre-race visit and memorable command to start engines by the 43rd President of the United States. Oh, and the undisputed President of NASCAR Nation also won the biggest race of his career. The legacy continues. Dale Earnhardt Jr. wins the 46th Daytona 500. Tony Stewart second, Scott Wimmer third, Kevin Harvick fourth, and Jimmy Johnson fifth. For Dale Earnhardt Jr., his first victory in the 500 in his fifth try. Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s first Daytona 500 victory in the 46th running of the Great American Race came before 200,000 fans who gathered at the World Center of Racing with NASCAR at an unmistakable crossroads. Eras were beginning and ending at every turn on February 15, 2004. A lot of new things in NASCAR racing 2004. Cellular phone company Nextel became title sponsor, replacing R.J. Reynolds, whose red and white Winston logos have become synonymous with NASCAR since 1971. Sunoco was the new NASCAR fuel supplier, supplanting Unical and its orange Union 76 brand that was ubiquitous at racetrack gas pumps. In the Cup Garage, the 46 Daytona 500 marked the debut of Roush Yates engines, a stunning new partnership of horsepower for Jack Roush and Robert Yates. The rival Ford owners rarely were on the same page about anything before they signed a contract to merge their highly successful engine building businesses. As he joined forces with Roush, Yates was trying to help longtime team owner Junie Dunleavy, 
who was making one last go at the Daytona 500. Meanwhile, Joe Gibbs also was stepping back from his racing organization, having returned to the NFL with the Washington team he guided to three Super Bowl wins. And as a backdrop that threatened to overshadow all of it, the first race of the 2004 season also was the first of a new playoff-style format that drastically would alter how NASCAR selected the champion of its premier series. There's just a, a big excitement about the Daytona 500. Series champions. It's just tough to win. Daytona champions. The prestige of it has just been built for so many years. The ultimate prize. If you got to be good somewhere, there's no place better to be good than at Daytona. The legacy. Using blessings learned from his father. NBC Sports presents the 46th running of the Daytona 500. Live from Daytona Beach, Florida, the sun has come out. It's a breezy afternoon. And for 43 of the greatest drivers in the world, in front of 200,000 fans, their afternoon begins by shaking hands with the President of the United States, who arrived just a few moments ago. As NBC broadcast its second Daytona 500 ever, more than 33 million people were watching. At the time, the second highest TV rating for a live NASCAR Cup Series race in history. It was the biggest sporting event of the weekend, and that was reflected in who was at the race in person. CEOs from a few dozen Fortune 500 companies that sponsored NASCAR teams were there. Ben Affleck was the Grand Marshal and pace car driver. Whoopi Goldberg was the honorary starter. And they were just a few of several Hollywood stars at this event. Reigning World Series MVP Josh Beckett of the Florida Marlins was among a few dozen sports stars on hand, representing Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL, and the NHL. But the man of the hour was the Commander-in-Chief. It's what a lot of people have been waiting for, Air Force One, as it approaches Daytona Beach. President George W. Bush will be here, landing just a few minutes at the airport directly behind the Daytona International Speedway. Air Force One appeared above the track nearly an hour before the green flag circling on a slow approach to land at the Daytona Beach Airport, virtually adjacent to the backstretch. But the anticipation for President George W. Bush's arrival had begun days earlier. Myriad planning and schedule adjustments were made for the first visit to a NASCAR Cup Series race by a sitting U.S. president in more than 20 years. Alan Beswick had the play-by-play call for the race, alongside analysts Benny Parsons and Wally Dombach Jr., my overall impression thinking back was it was off our routine because a lot of it was because first of all, it was February. We were doing the race back in the time when, you know, it alternated between Fox and NBC. And that was only what the second time we did the Daytona 500. So, you know, for me, I did a bundle of them on radio, but that was off routine that we had developed with our TV crew. And then because the president was there, your race day routine was altered. You know, normally you go in the garage, you, you see your friends, you check up on, you know, what's going on and, and strategies and whatever all. And then you wander over to the driver's meeting and you sit through that. And then maybe you head out to grab a, a you know, late breakfast, early lunch. And then you head up to the booth a couple hours before the race. This was, no, go directly to the booth as soon as you get into the grounds. Go directly to the booth. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 because at some point the Secret Service is going to shut off the elevators and we don't know when that's going to be and you're not going to be able to get up there. So I just remember being in the booth like exceedingly early in the morning, reading like three newspapers, sitting there with, you know, I mean, all of us looking around like, okay, what do we do now? 
but yet it was neat to see. So I just remember with all of that, just it being off routine uh, leading up to the green flag. And then once the green flag waved, it was, it was doing what we do. I want to say we were there by like seven o'clock and probably in the booth by eight o'clock in the booth, you know, four or five hours before you're actually going to do anything, you know, meaningful. So it was a long day, but you know, on the other side of it, it was Daytona 500 day. And it, it, it wouldn't have mattered if they asked me to get to the booth at midnight. You'd have done it. You'd have been excited to do it. And when they waved the green flag, you'd have been, you'd have been ready because you knew something really fun was about to happen. Gaming Today writer Brant James was covering the Daytona 500 as the lead motorsports writer for the St. Petersburg Times. James was back at Daytona after an inauspicious 2003 introduction to the Great American Race. I was the sidebar guy for the previous Daytona 500. It was my second one, and I'd done a, a, a summer race. The only thing notable about my previous Daytona 500 was John Travolta almost hit me in, a, in the nose with the media center door, leaving his press conference, to which point I was thinking, damn it, John Travolta, that was close. And then he's way shorter than I thought he would be. A year later, James got a literal rude awakening for his second Daytona 500. Media were instructed to arrive at the crack of dawn because of presidential security measures. By 6 a.m. at Daytona International Speedway, several dozen sports writers already had been herded into the Houston Lawning press box. They took turns catching catnaps on a few couches inside the large glass box overlooking the mammoth front straightaway. As I recall, we, we spent a lot of that day sort of like locked Tower of London style in the press box because, you know, once you get in, you're there and... It was just very difficult to go back and, and forth anyway at, at Daytona. Uh, but we were told, stay in place. I remember watching the crowd filling in. And, you know, obviously it was a huge, massive crowd, um, you know, signaling that it was going to be a very big day. But I remember President Bush was obviously very into it. He was doing a lot of milling around. About 45 minutes before the green flag flew, a long parade of black Suburbans and SUVs entered through a backstretch crossover gate. The presidential motorcade came around the apron in turns three and four and into pit lane. The 46th running of the Daytona 500 on tap this afternoon. Many of these 200,000 fans have been here for 10 days. And here's one of the newest fans coming into the track. The president of the United States, George W. Bush, landed just a few minutes ago at the airport behind the speedway. Now the motorcade proceeding onto the track and around the racing surface. The motorcade with the president has pulled along pit road. The first lady, Laura Bush, out of the car. Just behind his wife, Laura, the president exited to cheers and a greeting from a NASCAR contingent led by semi-retired Bill Elliott. Awesome Bill was absent from the Daytona 500 starting lineup for the first time in 25 years. President Bush shook hands with every driver on the starting grid before an interview with Bill Weber. And now it's our pleasure to welcome the President of the United States, George W. Bush, to the Daytona 500. Welcome, Mr. President. I am really glad to be here. Uh, if you've never been to a Daytona 500, it's hard for me to describe <laughs> what it's like to be down here with the drivers and to see the huge crowd and to feel the excitement for one of America's great sporting spectacles. Well, this is huge. This has got, this covers a lot of territory. You know, the track is big, the expanse is big, there's people in the infield, there's people have been camping out here. This is, uh, 
this is uh, more than an event. It's a, it's a way of life for a lot of people. And, uh, and, and it, you can feel the excitement when you're here. And it's, I'm really looking forward to, to watching a lot of the race. It's neat to meet these are drivers. They're courageous people. They, they know no fear. Your uh, motorcade moves pretty fast. Any desire to uh, ride in one of these, sir? Well, I'd like to, but I'm afraid the agents wouldn't let me. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm a, you know I flew fighters when I was in the guard, and I like speed. And uh, it would have been fun to drive up on these banks. People don't understand how steep these banks are, though, till you see them in person. And I was with Bill Elliott, who was telling me that uh, he set the course record here at 210 miles an hour. I can't imagine taking a bank at 210 miles an hour. All five branches of the armed services represented here this weekend on the track, and I know that's important to you, sir. Well, it is. And one of the things about NASCAR and the NASCAR fans is they support our military. With the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, and the National Guard, all represented as NASCAR sponsors, the president lingered among the dozens of service members crowding the grid. Beswick was left to tap dance on air while waiting for the right moment to transition to the invocation and national anthem as President Bush made his rounds. NBC Sports live at Daytona International Speedway where the Daytona 500 is moments from getting started. We go trackside for the invocation national anthem and command to start engines. Well, apparently the president is still walking around shaking some hands and they're still getting uh, the motorcade organized so we can get the, uh, oh, that's why he's busy with some important people. The military. And the president visiting with some members of the uh, armed services before uh, coming out to the head end of the field to conduct his duties to get this race underway. I don't guess there's anybody there that's got enough nerve to go up and say, come on, Mr. President, you got yeah, some exactly. job to do. <laughs> he kinda, he's gonna set the agenda here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, which is perfectly fine. It's making me giggle because I, I can remember the sense of, okay, there's no one down there going to tell him to hurry up, and we're not starting until he's ready for us to start. So, I mean, he is the president of the United States. You know, he's here for a reason. No, nobody's going to tap him on the shoulder and say, now, Mr. President, you know, and, you know, that's what we do, right? It's what we do. And, and that, hey, you know, this is what's going on. Uh, we should have started, but we haven't, and that's okay. But yeah, it's what, you know, I mean, it's what you do. It's live television, right? You only get one chance to get it right. And if you get it wrong, it lives on YouTube forever. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome NASCAR Nextel Cup Series championship driver, Mr. Bill Elliott. Ladies and gentlemen, for the most famous words in racing, the president of the United States. Thank you, Bill. Laura and I are honored to be here for this fantastic spectacle. We asked God's blessings on the drivers, NASCAR fans, and on our great nation. Now it is my honor to start this race. Gentlemen, start your engines. It wasn't the first time, you know, that the president had been to the racetrack. I experienced Bush 41's visit with, uh, with MRN back in the day, and I was actually the announcer picked to do the interview, which was done in a secluded area back behind the garage area, not, you know, not up in the tower, not, you know, they tarped off all these fences and things. So I'd been through that whole Secret Service thing before, and, and I remember the first time George W. Bush came to the racetrack, he was a candidate for president. 
I was doing that race with MRN, uh, with Barney, and we were supposed to interview him at some point during the day. All of a sudden, he's standing between Barney and I, and he's just watching the race. And we're looking over and like, oh my God, get a headset on him. Don't keep him waiting. And he's going, no, 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 this is fun. This might be the quietest moment I've got all day. Please keep doing what you're doing. So when President Bush came in 2004, now this was post 9-11. What stands out to me that day is how much more security was ramped up over when he came as a, as a candidate for president and when his father came on July 4th, uh, 1992, I believe that was. So what stood out to me about that is how much more everything was elevated in securing the grounds and securing the president and real sense of pride that, that everything, you know, you think about what Daytona and NASCAR took on in the middle of their biggest race of the year post 9-11 to have the president of the United States on the grounds of this spectator event with a couple of hundred thousand people. Other than having to get to the booth so early in the morning, I don't know that anything really presented a hiccup to my day uh, or an interruption. So the aftermath of that to me was for everything that it built up in the days leading up to it, the execution was terrific. President Bush's arrival actually bumped Ben Affleck from giving the command to start engines. But the Hollywood star still got to drive the Corvette pace car and received the loudest ovation of a star-studded pre-race driver's meeting. Affleck also drew the biggest laughs during a round of Sunday morning media center press conferences. Fellow actor Jim Caviezel also was in attendance as the title star of The Passion of the Christ, a movie that was promoted on the hood of Bobby Labonte's car and also was featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. That caused Affleck to crack that, quote, it begs the question of the other drivers, why even show up? I mean, Jesus is in Bobby's pit. You know whose side God is on. My money's on Jesus. Affleck, was he there promoting Jersey Girl? Was that was that his movie that year? But he had um, he had this awful Fu Manchu beard thing going. And he had one of the most NASCAR-y NASCAR jackets ever. It was like peak NASCAR jacket. It was way, way too big. And it was either leather or pleather with five or six different colors on it. It had a lot going on. But yeah, I think, was Tim Wakefield there too, maybe? I think Affleck was totally fanboying out with Wakefield. I, I thought I remember like him you know, mugging for pictures with him, which completely makes sense. The race was held the day after news broke that the New York Yankees had acquired Alex Rodriguez, which caused Affleck, a noted Boston Red Sox fan, to joke that George Steinbrenner and the Yankees were, quote, the center of evil in the universe. President Bush also was asked about the A-Rod trade. I know you're a sports fan, and I know you had ownership interest in the Texas Rangers. Right. The big news is A-Rod going to uh, the Yankees. Yeah, I was just as surprised as the Yankee fans and the Boston Red Sox fans when I opened up my paper today. It obviously is a big deal, uh, and uh, the Yanks are going to be a, a heck of a team with him in the infield. It was as if everyone had come to the Daytona 500 to discuss the major issues of the day. When you think about that period of time, NASCAR was still on its rocket ride from the early 80s to what it became through the, the mid-2000s. It was still on the rocket ride. Uh, it was a place to be. It was a place to, to see and be seen. It was just an exciting event that you just wanted to be at. And I think, you know, Daytona's getting back to that now when you see the, the parade of celebrities and, you know, Pitbull performing and all, all these kinds of things. Uh, it's getting back to that now, which is great. But at that point, it, NASCAR was still on that rocket ride up. Couldn't build grandstands fast enough. Could, you know, the traffic was the biggest thing. 
So all of that happening at that time was just a great time in the sport. It was a great time to be in the sport, you know, and, and a great time to, to just enjoy all the excitement that every, every week seemed to bring. It was the continued escalation of everything that was NASCAR racing at that time. Bigger crowds, more excitement, bigger TV ratings. The, the TV rating for, for the 2004 Daytona 500 was something like a 10.6. That's awesome. Yeah, just just uh, the president being there was just a kind of a uh, an icing on the cake of everything that NASCAR racing and, and NASCAR as an industry was experiencing at that time. It is a sign of the times after 33 years as the primary sponsor, Winston, is losing its top billing and will be replaced by Nextel Communications with NASCAR. On Thursday, NASCAR announcing an agreement with America's most successful wireless company to next year rename the Winston Cup Series the NASCAR Nextel Cup Series. And it's our pleasure at NBC Sports to welcome the president and CEO of Nextel, Tim Donahue. Good to see you, sir. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. How are you? Um, I'm jazzed. I'm, I'm so delighted to be here. You were at this race two years ago and fell in love with it. I was. I, when we started first talking about whether or not NASCAR made sense for, for Nextel, I came down. And, and that's all it took. It was just one time to see the excitement in this sport, the crowds. The drivers, the owners, everybody involved in it. It's just been a fantastic ride for us. The most obvious signs of NASCAR being a trendsetter were yellow and black. Daytona International Speedway's 450 acres were awash in the corporate logos of Nextel, the cellular phone company that became the title sponsor of the Premier Series in 2004. It ended a 32-year run for the omnipresent red and white signage of R.J. Reynolds' Winston cigarette brand. But Nextel's new 10-year, $750 million deal proved that NASCAR had secured its place in the zeitgeist. In the early 21st century, it was becoming much more common for someone to have a cellular phone in their pocket than a pack of smokes. In only four months passed between Winston announcing its departure and Nextel being revealed as its replacement. The news became official June 19, 2003, at a glitzy event in Manhattan that was attended by Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt Jr., who said, quote, I'm a technology kind of guy. This takes the sport to a new era and new world. You attended the driver's meeting here in July and got the standing ovation from the drivers. How did that make you feel? <laughs> well, that, was a, that was definitely a fun day. And, uh, and you know, I think that more so probably than any other sport, at least that we've been associated with, the, the NASCAR fan base, is, it's just been incredible in terms of taking the sport to where it is today. And what we're all about is trying to continue to enhance the, the experience for the fans. And I think you'll see us doing that as we move down the road. We can already see your impact around this track, not to mention all the others are going to attend, all the signage, plus the huge uh, promotional mentions in the print and the electronic media. Yeah, we're, we're working real hard in, in terms of... Uh, getting a, an experience for the fans that's, that's new and it's different. Uh, you know, we have something called the Nextel Experience. Right. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's on the grounds and it'll be at all the races. And it's a wonderful interactive uh, uh, display that we have where the fans can actually sit in simulators, drive cars through the simulator, watch a pit crew work. There's lots of history inside the experience that talks about the history of NASCAR, and it's just, it's been terrific for us. As part of the deal, NASCAR would get roughly $40 million in rights fees annually from Nextel, but another $35 million would be spent on marketing and promoting the new high-profile connection between cellular technology and stock car racing. Because of federal regulations on tobacco, Winston and RJR had been restricted from marketing to minors and precluded from advertising on television. Nextel could go full force. 
Come on, baby. First down. Earnhardt. Yeah, coach. You're in. There was a branding blitz of commercials that put NASCAR stars in the national spotlight. Come on back, straight back. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, bud. That's it, come on back. Hey, Tank. What exit? Walkie-talkies get it done. Max Tell. I'm more of a Molly Hatcher fan myself. Man, this Nextel walkie-talkie phone is magic. I lost my helmet the other day, pushed this button, my helmet appeared. Magic. New spark plugs are in. See? It's magic. In a hot, new, untapped digital consumer category, NASCAR could be marketed to children and families like never before. And on behalf of NASCAR's drivers, teams, tracks, sponsors, and 75 million fans, it's an honor for me to welcome Nextel as a new title sponsor of our premium series, the NASCAR Nextel Cup, beginning with the 2004 season. That was NASCAR chairman Bill France Jr. making the official introduction of Nextel. It would be his last major act in public. France would turn control of NASCAR over to his son Brian three months later. For Brant James, the 2004 season also coincided with his first full year on the beat covering NASCAR. And the timing seemed perfect because everything felt new. Absolutely. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it because not only, like I said, I tried to ask every person every question I could before I knew who you should go ask questions of. Everybody else had to do it too. So it's like everyone was sort of like writing, well, going in to cover baseball. I thought I knew some stuff about baseball, but you really don't know as much as you think. I knew I didn't know a damn thing about NASCAR. So it was great that I had to learn and everyone was trying to do the same thing too. There was a beginning point of the knowledge. I came in on the beat. 2004 was my first full year. So it was like, for me, it was like, okay, we're starting. I'm covering races more at the tail end of 03. Winston, red and white everywhere. And then uh, 04, black and yellow, black and yellow, so much black and yellow. The officials, black and yellow, things are slathered, black and yellow. Uh, so much activation by then, I believe, the number five uh, cellular carrier in the United States of America. You know, it, it was interesting. Um, it, it, I believe that was also Brian France's first full year, my first full year, Nextel first full year. I, I never get invited to the club to, to wax about all of our first full years. I'm sure that the email got you know, stuck in a spam folder or something. But it, it was, you know, for a, a, a rookie on the beat like me, it was really interesting to cover because it was just it was just a brand new chapter. NASCAR also was turning to a jarring new page in its competitive history. Matt Kenseth comes to the line, finishing fourth. And Matt Kenseth is the 2003 NASCAR Winston Cup Series champion. Matt Kenseth had captured the 2003 championship with one of the most consistent seasons in history. But he also won only once, and early in the year. And his title hardly was in doubt over the second half of the 10-month, 36-race season. Kenseth became the fifth champion in six seasons to wrap up the championship before the season finale. A chorus had been growing over NASCAR's lackluster title races being overshadowed in the fall against the NFL and college football, losing its steam among the national audience that NASCAR wanted to capture. So a month ahead of the 2004 Daytona 500 at its R&D center in Concord, North Carolina, NASCAR president Mike Helton unveiled the plan to goose the championship run. 
Since the beginning of NASCAR, the France family has had a vision. Today marks the exciting beginning of another chapter in NASCAR's history. Please welcome the president of NASCAR, Mike Helton. Competition remains the core element and the driving force of NASCAR. From Bill France Sr. to Bill France, and now the third generation leader, Brian France, NASCAR has had to make many important decisions over the course of its history. Looking as far back as the 1940s when Bill France Sr. promoted stock car racing on the sands of Daytona Beach to the eventual move to asphalt ovals in the 50s and 60s, change has sometimes been met with skepticism. The idea of building high bank super speedways at Daytona and Talladega created plenty of debate. And it wasn't that long ago that some thought the idea of NASCAR races at Indianapolis was a mistake. While NASCAR has taken advantage of opportunities that were presented, there were other times when we created our own opportunities. Today's announcement is one of those times. With NASCAR having one of the longest seasons in all of professional sports, it became obvious that we needed a different approach to enhance the interest and excitement over the course of the season. During the fall season, when we're in competition, with other major sports. In the NASCAR Nextel Cup Series alone, we are modifying the format we use to determine the champion. This new format will be known as the NASCAR Nextel Cup Chase for the Championship. And here's how it works. Under the new system, NASCAR created a 10-race shootout among at least 10 drivers over the final 10 races of the season. The point standings were reset to ensure late-season drama. It was an embrace of the playoff concepts used in all the other major professional team sports. But there was pushback among NASCAR fans and an industry accustomed to a point system in place since 1975. Famously drawn up on a cocktail napkin at the Boot Hill Saloon in Daytona, consistency was the mantra of NASCAR's season-long Cup Series championship. This is a very important announcement we can see with the uh, number of people that are there, but also it's very important because of the firestorm of opposition this thing has really gotten from the drivers all the way down to the fans. And when you think about the current point system being in place since 1975, you can kind of understand why people are a little reluctant to change. 20 years later, those complaints largely have faded. NASCAR since has modified the system in ways that make winning more of an imperative. In 2017, the chase finally was rebranded as a playoff after the introduction of elimination rounds three years earlier. But in 2004, there was great sensitivity to how its first iteration would be accepted. During their hour-long news conference on January 20th, 2004, Helton and Brian France steadfastly avoided calling the chase a playoff while also selling its merits. This is not a playoff. Every one of our events will continue to be Super Bowl-type races with all 43 drivers competing against each other at the same track to win a race. First question, David Poo. Obviously, the, the first question is there has been a lot of negative comment from fans and from participants. What do you guys say to that? And are you concerned at how quickly you'll be able to sort of win that public relations uh, battle? When it all sinks in, when all the details are understood and as it unfolds, they're going to love it. They're going to love it because more drivers are going to have an opportunity to compete for a championship late in the year. Racing's, we've got great racing now, it's going to even be better. Dustin Long, Landmark Newspapers. Uh, Brian, what ultimately will determine if this is a successful program? Our goal is to, to create more interest in the sport. They're going to be racing harder and competing more, and that's how we're going to judge 
uh, if it's successful or not. Yeah, Chris Jenkins, USA Today. Brian, I was wondering what your dad thought of the final product here. I think he, uh, uh, I think he likes it. Uh, I think uh, he was uh, always ready to make changes in a smart, intelligent way when we needed to. He did that in Indianapolis when a lot of people thought uh, that NASCAR wouldn't fit, wouldn't work well. Is there a seating process for the top ten with ten to go? Well, there's a seating, the seating process is uh, how you finish uh, after the tw 26 events. Uh, we won't call that a seating because what we're not going to call this is a playoff. It's not a playoff. It's not a single elimination. It's not a win uh, or lose and you're out. It's not a best three out of five. It's better than all that because it's, it still has consistency. It still has 10 tracks over two and a half months to compete. So we think we've got uh, uh, something that's better than the playoffs. Yeah, Liz Clark from the Washington Post. I, I understand the comment about all boats, you know, will rise if this succeeds, but I do have a question about sponsorship and the value to the sponsors, and that is, in the broadcast of your final 10 races, how do you ensure that the, the TV cameras and the commentary isn't exclusively on those drivers who've made the chase for the championship, you know, to the exclusion of everybody else and, and the exposure those sponsors want as well, or is that a concern of yours? Well, uh, if you think about it today, uh, they're going to cover the important stories of the race. The difference is there's going to be more interesting stories. More people are going to compete for the championship. And even people that aren't competing for the championship uh, are going to be interjected into the story because uh, there's going to be more interest for that particular event. So there'll be more significance if I'm in 14th place, if I'm in 18th place, uh, and I win that day or I compete and run up front, the networks are going to cover that story because that's uh, who's, because uh, our, our event still, uh, uh, you know, it matters who wins the event. The championship's important, but winning the race is critically important, especially to 43 guys that are out there uh, who think they need to and should. And it's, it's important to remember that this format change is not to replace exposure. It's to grow exposure. It's not to replace a storyline, or it's to create another one in addition to it. Uh, we're not changing the race format. All we're changing is, is the format to determine the champion. Uh, all those other storylines should stay there. We just want this one to be another one and, and, and broaden, quite frankly, all the other storylines. But if you tell the average race fan that more drivers can win a championship, that the drivers are going to have more incentive to race harder, uh, how in the world can any, any of our fans, over time, once this unfolds, think anything other than that's a great plan? Playoffs, they, they make every sport better, obviously. I, I thought it made perfect sense because the previous, in 2003, when I was finishing out the year, I think we were at Rockingham. And like Kenza, just the, the points lead was just massive and it was, it was boring. And I mean, I don't begrudge him. He scores more points and he wins the system. Great for him. But I'm like, wow, this is why y'all doing this? I mean, can you just, you know, go play some darts or something? I mean, wh wh why are you here? Why Save some gas, save some tires. Play playoffs make perfect sense. I, I don't know why, uh, you know, there was fear of it. I, I didn't get it, but certainly there was a lot of hand-wringing going on all over. But I think it was just too much change at one time, you know? Fear is change. Change is bad, we fear change. You know, you, you took away my cigarettes, man. You took away my point system. You changed the France. What else did you do? There's so much going on here. I don't understand. So it, I, I was luckily 
and thankfully uh, immune from it because some of the uh, the more established fans and reporters were sort of up in arms. Too much was getting thrown at them, and I'm like, I don't know, man. It's what they do, right? $16 million in awards on the line, better than a million dollars to the winner. And the drivers all looking toward the starter stand. As they come off of turn number four, the honorary starter for the 500, Whoopi Goldberg, has the green flag in hand. In a minute, she's going to set 200,000 voices yelling in the air as these 43 drivers set off on their once-a-year chance to win their sport's biggest prize, the Daytona 500. Pace car is off. Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Elliott Sadler bring the field down for the start. The 46th Daytona 500 is green. There was no dispute on the outlook for the race. At Daytona and Talladega, the two tracks where restrictor plates on the carburetors bunched up the field and made drafting partners essential, the Dale Earnhardt Incorporated Chevrolets were dominant. Dale Earnhardt Jr. and teammate Michael Waltrip had won nine of the previous 12 races at Daytona and Talladega. Michael Waltrip will win the EA Sports 500 at Talladega. And Junior did not abandon. No, he did. He stayed there with him. Stayed with him. Uh, it's a good team effort. And, you know, when DI's won two on a track with Dale Jr., it's hard to beat us. DI's won nine of the last 12 restrictor play races. And with Waltrip having won the Daytona 500 in two of the past three years, Conventional wisdom held that 2004 would be Dale Jr.'s turn. One week ago today, Greg Biffle, in his 43rd attempt, won his first pole. But yesterday afternoon, his team decided to make an engine change. By rule, Biffle's car will now have to start at the rear of the field. That means the entire inside line moves up one spot. That means Dale Earnhardt Jr. will lead this field in the Daytona 500 to the green flag. That leads us to Matt Yoakum. Bill, it took an extra week, but Dale Earnhardt Jr. is back on the front row for the second straight Daytona 500. And, Jr., everyone in the garage feels like you are the guy to beat. Do you feel the same? Well, I wish I had a $100 for every time I've heard that this week. Um, I got a great car, and I can win the race. You know, if that makes me the favorite, I guess so. But uh, there's a lot of guys out there that are fast, and these cars seem like they're different every day, even if you don't work on them. So we'll just hopefully it's buckled down. Everything's ready to go today. But despite the DEI dominance, there were some interesting wrinkles entering the 2004 Daytona 500. With a goal of enhancing the racing, NASCAR increased rear downforce by raising the car's spoilers, and Goodyear softened its tires. The changes had a dramatic effect at Daytona, starting with the twin 125-mile qualifying races on Thursday. Instead of running in massive packs three wide and ten rows deep, cup drivers were spread across the track with ill-handling cars that lost the draft much more quickly. The most noticeable impact was on Earnhardt Jr. and Waltrip, who typically controlled restrictor plate races while running 1-2 at the front. Dale Jr. won the first qualifying race Thursday, but he did it without much help from Waltrip. Tony Urey, Earnhardt's crew chief, made a point about being miffed. Seems like our teammate don't want to be a teammate no more, so uh, we ended up dumping him at the end and going and win the race, all we supposed to do, and uh, that's the way they want to play. That's the way we're going to play. Should make for an interesting Sunday, guys. <laughs> wow, that was strong. Michael Waltrip reference there. Woo. I knew if I was going to win, I had to get my Michael real quick, and uh, I was going for the win there. After the race, Tony Sr. talked with Matt, and he said the 15 and the 8 didn't seem to work together like the 15 maybe didn't run with you as you expected. 
you know, I was on the outside there at one point in the race early, and we hit, we had a pit stop to go, and, and he went to the inside and left me out there by myself, and, you know, so that kind of wrote the script for the rest of the race for me, and uh, I was out there on my own from then on out, so... Should we expect to see you guys together on Sunday like we've seen in the past? Well, I mean, I draft, I, me and Michael will draft fine together in the future. We just didn't that day, today. You know, it wasn't any big deal. I love Dale Jr. We worked so well together. I thought when we caught the 24, it'd be a chance for him to get me. He pushed me so strong to the 24, I couldn't turn my car to the left. He had me uh, pushed out of the way. But, uh, you know, Jr. and I, we, we do a nice job on the track. Those uh, cats on pit road of the eight. You know, you just have to take it with a grain of salt when you hear some of the stuff they come up with. Like I said, I love Dale Jr., and uh, we've had a lot of success together, and that will continue. Uh, I thought we I thought we did a nice job working together, and um, I don't blame him for getting the win. The last time I checked, they paid more if you finished first, so our Napa Chevy ran good. That was a great chance for Jr. to jump on me. I, you know, I'm amazed that, that those uh, crew guys can carry on like that, but... Um, we know what the big picture is, and the old Napa Chevy will be a part of it on Sunday. The story ended up as a non-factor during the race. Waltrip became the unwitting main character in the day's biggest wreck, a 12-car pileup on lap 71 that started when rookies Brian Vickers and Johnny Sauter tangled on the backstretch. He's oh, all oh, trouble. trouble. Contact on hang the backstretch. It's Mike oh. Waltrip and now Brian Vickers. Oh. Robbie Gordon, 31. The top. Oh, Waltrip's from Michael Waltrip. Well, there's the now, big one the right big there. One. That's Michael Waltrip's car upside down. Waltrip's number 15 Chevrolet went tumbling through the backstretch grass and landed on its roof. Though Waltrip was okay, it took nearly 10 minutes for the safety team to extricate the six foot five driver from his Monte Carlo which eventually was flipped onto its wheels. And the work continues around the Michael Waltrip machine. And also the way the seats are, are around you, the headpieces, it's very difficult for somebody like Michael. If he's okay, the best thing they could do is turn the car over and then get him out, if he's okay. Uh, they are talking to Michael, the safety workers are. So precautions being taken to extricate Michael Waltrip from his machine. They got the car up on its side and looks like they're flipping it over. Well, Michael Waltrip, you look a little dirty, but uh, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Just unfortunate. I was on the outside, and the I survived one rookie being on the inside of me. But I guess when the second one decided to dive in there, it was uh, too much. They got together and pinned me into the wall. And uh, that grass down on the back stretch is just real, real dangerous. When the car stopped, I was pinned uh, way bad. I felt like one of those dudes at uh, Mirage at the Le Cirque or whatever it is. I was in a box and I couldn't get out, and I didn't appreciate the way the safety workers were going about it so I was trying to tell them just to turn the car over you know racing cars is not the most it's not the safest thing maybe at times it's not even the sanest thing you do so you understand you're gonna get in some binds and uh, you don't worry about what you get yourself into you look forward to people helping you get out of it and I couldn't see where they were doing a whole lot of good to get me out so um, I was trying my best to explain to them what needed to happen and what did they eventually do after me screaming and yelling for 10 minutes they flipped it over and I got out so uh, I hope that was a lesson learned. Though Earnhardt Jr. lost his teammate in the wreck, he still had a wingman. Two weeks earlier, Tony Stewart and Dale Jr. had teamed together in a prototype that finished fifth in the Rolex 24 at Daytona sports car endurance race. It was the latest pairing in a Chevrolet partnership that had begun bearing fruit. It wasn't Top Gun, but I wouldn't leave my wingman, you know. 
he'd help get us there and and we've always run good together i mean it's something about you get those two cars together on a super speedway and if we don't have problems we can help him out a lot earnhardt's number eight and stewart's number 20 had been helping each other often at daytona and talladega a few hours before the 2004 daytona 500 began Stewart already was forecasting that he would be working closely with Dale Jr. Yeah, we got an awesome race team. Those guys have done a great job. And, uh, you know, I talked to Dale Jr. We're back on our same plan. We always are here. So uh, don't be surprised to see the 8 and 20 hooked up together again today. It was an unusual bromance after Stewart and Earnhardt Jr. had gotten off on the wrong foot in the Bush Series six years earlier. We ran into each other a couple times in the Bush Series and had some pretty uh, colorful arguments and stuff, and namely uh, Pike's Peak. We got to beat him banging on each other, he, and uh, I ran into him about six, seven times trying to get by him, and he sent me into the fence on, on the restart, and then we ended up in the, in the bush hauler trying to get at each other and holler, holler, cussing them back and forth, carrying on. Then the next week, we was in Milwaukee, and he walked up to me and said, look, man, you know, I just want to be, things to be cool between us. You know, we, we're going to race each other and everything. I mean, I think you're cool as hell, and your daddy's good. You know, good, good man, and he's raised you well, and I just really, I do got a lot of respect for you, and I just want you to know that if you want to be friends, we can be friends. And I just thought that was cool as hell, because I was just all ready to go at it again if he wanted to, you know. He just kind of said, look, let's just be buds. You know, I think we admire each other for the fact that, I mean, we're, we're both fierce competitors, but, you know, we like to have fun. Um, you know, we're a lot alike in a lot of ways. Um, you know, our backgrounds are, are totally different from each other, obviously, but, I mean, we enjoy a lot of the same things. Um, I think we both respect each other for, for what we do and what we've been able to accomplish in our careers, and, uh, you know, we do it. We just have a good friendship. Having a dedicated partner proved to be a blessing in the second half of the 2004 Daytona 500. It became very easy to lose the lead draft without a single restart. The crash that eliminated Waltrip was the race's final caution period. The last 120 laps were run under a green flag, an extraordinary stretch of clean racing. It was the longest green flag run to end a Daytona 500 in 41 years. The 2004 race had four cautions for 23 laps, the fewest for a full-length Daytona 500 in 20 years. It seems unfathomable now. Every Daytona 500 since 2004 has featured at least six caution flags, and in five of the past six years, the Daytona 500 has gone into overtime on late yellows. But in 2004, the final 300 miles were relatively calm amid some pinpoint precision by drivers and their pit crews. What I remember about it is the big wreck happening earlier and kind of thin in the herd. With those plate races, you know, the closer you get to the finish and the more the pressure builds, the more likely the mistake that causes the next big wreck. I remember just waiting on the next big wreck that never happened, which is such a credit to the drivers of those cars at that time. Now, partly again, the herd was thinned a little bit, but also the drivers, I mean, they did a tremendous job to run 300 miles at Daytona with that kind of prize on the line and nobody makes a mistake, any kind of mistake, getting to pit road, a pit crew and a little too much of a hurry and leaving lugs loose on a tire, a piece of debris falling off a car. Uh, no. Once that big wreck happened, it thinned things out enough that once you got through a couple of green flag pit stops, uh, it made those conditions possible. And then the drivers just just did a, a, a tremendous job to, to race it out and not drive through each other. Somewhere along the way, we got to this, this mode that a great race needs 
40 cars in a pack steaming around the racetrack two and three wide. And I, and I grant you that is thrilling and exciting to see, but it doesn't have to be that way for it to be a great race. You just need two cars to have a great race. I, I don't recall that race being any less exciting to me or going home any less happy. Maybe there's a lesson there or maybe, maybe there are some things to be looked at. I, I do know this. If I were a team owner today, I would automatically build into my budget. I'm going to need four cars after the four super speedway races. And if I don't, that's a great thing. You know, it's just kind of the way it is. Junior could not quite make it. He's still trying. Here oh, he goes look again. At this. Another run to the inside of Stewart, and he might have him this time. A great run going to turn three. He's right got there. it. Good job. You're clear. New leader of the 500 is Dale Earnhardt Jr. Wow. And the fans are going nuts in Daytona. You know, someone told me a couple of days ago, if this kid in the eight car wins a Daytona 500, we might not be safe in this tower line. These fans will go ballistic. I think they'll rock the stands, huh? They will rock the stands in Daytona. The winning pass brought the fans to their feet with 19 laps to go. After they drafted past surprising rookie Scott Wimmer together, Earnhardt Jr. and Stewart squared off in turn three on lap 181. Earnhardt used a side draft to stall out Stewart and sail into first for good. You know, I, I don't remember much about the pass. Side drafting, you know, his dad was the one that figured that out years ago, and, and everybody else figured it out from what he was doing. I just remember the feel-good of the day. Uh, such Even people that weren't Earnhardt fans, right? It felt good to see him win the Daytona 500 because of the history, because of everything. It felt good for everybody that was there. And of course, you know, given his popularity, when he goes to the lead, you could feel, you know, just about feel that tower shake from all the people jumping up and down on the stands, right? Uh, to quote the, my, my pal, the late Dick Brooks, bunch of happy people down there. Just an awesome day and a, and a great way to start what turned into a really awesome season. Even Stewart actually seemed okay with finishing second. We had a great handling car all week. We just needed speed and, you know, Mark Cromquist and all the guys back in Charlotte, the engine department of Joe Gibbs Racing and all the guys here at the track. I mean, we just kept throwing combinations after combination after and just kept working on our car. And uh, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just so proud of these guys. I can't believe it. I mean, uh, sure, I'd love to be down there in victory lane right now, but I mean, the eight car was the class of the field all week and, uh, you know, to... To stay ahead of him as long as we did, I mean, when he decided he was ready to pull the pin, he pulled it. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I mean, we, we ran a good race. And, I mean, i tell you what, him and I have worked together as a team at these restrictor plate tracks for the last three years. And, you know, it, as long as we can get that combination like this and finish one-two like this, uh, you know, he's got his now. I'll get mine next year. Later in the media center, Smoke said, Well, I mean, I'm happy about the day we had. But, you know, considering what that kid went through losing his father here at the Daytona 500, um, and knowing how good he's been here and just something's happened, it's nice to see him get his victory here too. Uh, I think his, I think his father's really proud today. Um, you know, and, and I'd love to win the race. Trust me. I mean, I did everything I could to still win the race. Um, and if I could have held him off and had him finish second, I'd have done it in a heartbeat. But uh, you know, there just was no holding that kid back today. Today was his day. Brant James's story about Dale Jr. winning the Daytona 500 was named one of the country's 10 best game recaps of 2004 by the Associated Press Sports Editors Organization, the gold standard for sports writing awards. The story led with the emotion that James saw in the grandstands below. Grown men were crying, children wearing number eight gear were bounding, and Earnhardt was dropping nonstop pithy quotes that tied all of the emotions together. 
Good God. I'm a Daytona 500 champion. I can't believe it. I had a, I had a, I had a great car. Awesome car built by Tony Sr. and all the guys. I want to say to my sister and my mama back home, all my friends. Uh, good God. I can't believe it. It's the greatest ever. Man, I tell you, it's a hard race to win. You know, it's a season in itself. That entire race is just, there's so many things going on, so much running through your mind. You know, I've seen it. Been lost so many times by Dad over and over, and I, I was taught so many lessons by this place where I ever got behind the wheel. And God, I'm glad I ain't got to worry about it no more. Man, this is awesome. You're only the third father-son combination to win the Daytona 500. Dale, your father won it six years ago today. Yeah, I mean, he he was over in the pasture side riding with me. I'm sure he was having a blast. I still have the book on my shelf. NASCAR for dummies that someone gave me when I, when I got the NASCAR job. I asked every dumb question I could of everyone, and I didn't pretend like I knew stuff. So I was looking for a, a story, a scene, because I felt like I could do that better than talking about tire changes. And, and that's, that's sort of what my paper was wanting, because we didn't cover every race. It was, okay, this is the big one. It's in Florida. We're in Florida. Go cover the scene. And it was more relatable to everyone. Dale Jr. In, in the winter circle and give someone something to read. Hopefully they'll read it. And um, I was out to uh, try not to explain the, you know, the crucial uh, moment of aerodynamic wizardry um, that he pulled off and talk about the car as much as I was. Okay, let's find out what this means to people. It was obvious what the win meant to Dale Jr., who won six years to the day that his father won his only Daytona 500 on his 20th try. Dale Jr. did it in his fifth attempt, and he immediately put it in the context of what it meant to his family. He later would add, I, I, I made that, you know, maybe all those things that happened in the past is what made us, made us uh, work harder and try to win this race more than, than any other. I mean, I'll be honest with you, this is more important to me than anything, any other race I run all year. And uh, I ain't ashamed to say that I put a lot of emphasis on coming down here and winning this race just because of what I've been through down here. I mean, you see Dad run second and, and blow tires out and flip over on back straightaway and this and that and other year after year after year after year. And there was not many things, if nothing at all, that ate that man's inside and out. But then, when losing this race over and over, you could see it on his face. And that's one of the things you could tell that I think everybody could tell bothered him. And he didn't show too much of that. And, uh, I, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it's just the greatest race. It's the greatest day of my life. And, um, it's not, it, you know, it just can't really uh, describe it. No one will ever will be able to tell this story to anybody and, and really get it right. You know what I'm saying? You know, I used to say that NASCAR always resolved the storyline. You know, you coming in, obviously, the Dale Earnhardt senior saga was, was a major, major part of it. His son entering into the sport, a major part of it. For him to to win that race, I believe six years to the day of his father's only win, just overlapping storylines with with you know Tony Erie Senior, Tony Erie Junior on the team and the crying and the just the the release of pent up energy and joy from anyone in the, in the stands that day, even if they didn't happen to be wearing red or white, was was really something to see. It was just it was absolutely <sighs> Shakespearean gets used too much, but grown men crying in the stands. Dale Jr. saying that his dad was in the passenger seat. I mean, my goodness, so many great interviews with that guy. I mean, I've never really seen an, an athlete who's willing to come into a, a room full of strangers, people he saw weekly, but strangers, 
and just open up his his soul, especially when he's a product of a very famous racing family. He's foisted into this position to take over. Everything is just public knowledge. Every his his life, his tragedies. People care about them. People have opinions about them. Certainly, a lot of pressure. And I loved in I think it was Victory Lane where he said he was glad to get this one over with because he talked about how it weighed on his dad and, and what this place was like. I mean, it's got to be tough to to go to work at this celebrated place that frustrated your father and where he died. I, I, I don't know how he does that. And, and the willingness of, of that guy uh, to talk about it at such an age under such pressure, there's no, it, it explains why he's been able to go on and become such a popular broadcaster, podcaster, really whatever he wants to do. It was pretty, pretty impressive. Fittingly, the most memorable moment after the first Nextel Cup Series race was a cell phone interruption. Dale Jr. was answering the opening question from Charlotte Observer sports writer David Poole, who asked about the emotions tied into winning at the track where Dale Jr.'s father was killed. The seven-time Cup champion died in a crash on the last lap of the 2001 Daytona 500. Things that have happened here affected so many people real close to me, myself and Tony and Tony Jr. and the entire team. Every time we come to Daytona, we just feel, uh, we all feel it, you know, whatever it is, you know, we just feel real strong about being here. And it's, you know, it's a, in a, in a way, it feels like I'm, you're closer to Dad, but at the same time, it feels like it's a reminder of losing him all over again. But, uh, so I wanted to come down here and win. Dale Jr.'s thoughts trailed off as he stared down at a flip phone. A few dozen reporters in the press box were able to overhear one side of a congratulatory phone call from President George W. Bush. Please forgive the audio for being a little bit muddy on this digital recording file that's nearly two decades old. But listen closely to hear the on-brand and informal way in which Dale Jr and it is short conversation with the leader of the free world. Stand up. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, the most exciting race of my life. Yes, sir. I'm glad to see you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is quick one. I was surprised with this one. <laughs> yeah, there were no calls. I tried to look, trying to remember how to do it. Hey, man. That was Dale Jr. poking fun at himself with a take it easy, man, after he had just told the President of the United States to take it easy. Hilarious. Uh, he calls in to congratulate, and it just feels like they would just shoot the breeze forever. And, and I think Dale Jr. said something like, take her easy. And it was probably the most natural thing in that conversation for him to say and for, for Bush to hear, you know, being a, a man who loves to go to his ranch and you know, play with brush and stuff. He probably says that to someone during his day. So it was really interesting to hear the dialogue back and forth between them. It also would be understandable why Dale Jr. might be feeling a little punchy. He still had one more race to run at 11 a.m. the next day. The Bush Series race had been postponed from Saturday after 30 laps because of rain. 
So after an early Monday morning wake-up call to watch his winning Daytona 500 car enshrined in the Daytona USA exhibit, Dale Jr. won the Bush race. Three Richard Childress Racing Associated drivers lined up behind Earnhardt Jr. But no one's been able to pass him for the last 30 laps. After a big day and a win in the Daytona 500 yesterday, Dale Earnhardt Jr. wins the Hershey's Kisses 300. Yeah, just, uh, I didn't know whether I was going to win or not. I mean, it's this package everybody can pass so easily, so uh, it's just any man's race, really. He then jetted to New York for a Daytona 500 winner's media tour of the national talk shows. There was much to discuss after winning nearly $2 million over three victories in 10 days in Daytona. And Earnhardt waved off any concerns that he'd be tired from a whirlwind speed weeks. I don't know, uh, I went to bed last night around probably two o'clock, got up at eight or seven thirty or something. That's enough sleep for me. I sleep during the day so much. I, I don't, you know, I started giving me an hour nap in here and there, add it all up, I get plenty of sleep. I feel pretty good there this morning when we got up. And, that's a pretty good alarm clock putting your car in the Daytona USA. That's pretty fun. By the way, a brief epilogue. The DEI Chevys won only one more plate race, Talladega by Dale Jr. in October. Tony Stewart never won the Daytona 500. And George W. Bush was re-elected President of the United States on November 2, 2004, five days before Dale Earnhardt Jr. won at Phoenix for his personal best sixth and final victory of the 2004 season. But none was bigger than February 15, 2004, which served as a pitch-perfect bookend to July 7, 2001. That was the Saturday night on which Dale Jr. won in NASCAR's first cup race at Daytona since his father's death. Alan Bestwick was on the call of both races. The race I get asked about the most of anything, you know, of the thousands I've done in my career is the, the July 2001 race. Here they come, turn four, final lap of the Pepsi 400. Michael Waltrip in second, but it's going to be Dale Earnhardt Jr. using lessons learned from his father to go from sixth to first and score the victory in the Pepsi 400. That's unbelievable. The thing that I remember most about the 2004 500 is the difference in emotion after the checkered flag waved. In 2001, there was this incredible sense of happiness mixed with this incredible sense of sadness and this incredible, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel right now for everybody. God, what, what, what that kid must be thinking. He just won the race. He's so happy about it, but he's standing there at the place where he lost his dad six months ago. And in 2004, I just remember pure joy. Hey, you know what? Junior gets to enjoy Daytona and he just won his sport's biggest race and it's nothing but happiness. That's the emotion I remember the most about that day is, is just the unbridled happiness that everyone felt for that still very young man to be able to celebrate that win in the way he was able to celebrate it. Good God, I'm Daytona 500 champion. I can't believe it. It's the greatest ever. Been lost so many times by dad over and over. and I, He was over in the pasture side riding with me. I'm sure he was having a blast. Thanks for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. And a huge thanks to Alan Bestwick and Gaming Today's senior writer, Brant James, for their contributions to this special narrative episode on the 20-year anniversary of the 2004 Daytona 500. The 66th Daytona 500 will be this Sunday. You can find broadcast and schedule information 
by visiting www.nbcsports.com NASCAR. There's also lots of content there from Dustin Long and John Newby. So check out www.nbcsports.com NASCAR. Dustin will be on site at Daytona International Speedway this week, so head to NBCSports.com NASCAR for all of his work now and throughout the 2024 season. I'll be back soon with another episode of the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Thanks again for listening. Friday. Friday. It's almost like whoever named Friday knew it should be celebrated with free fries. Free fries Friday at McDonald's. Get a free medium fries with any purchase of a dollar or more on the McDonald's app. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 930 to participate in McDonald's excludes tax. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.